welcome to the 15th episode of the podcast. This is your proprietor, Tony Ortega, coming to you from an undisclosed location deep inside the interior of the Earth's crust, otherwise known as the underground bunker. The big news this week, of course, is that former Scientology spokesman and Lee Remini's co-star, Mike Rinder, has released his really terrific book about his experience in the church, A Billion Years, My Escape from Life in the Highest Ranks of Scientology. And in our review, we pointed out that we felt the book had a unique place in the literature of this crazy organization that we keep an eye on. In order to help us put that into some perspective, we thought we'd discuss the book with one of the OGs on the scene, the man whose monumental history of Scientology was our own introduction to the subject, none other than historian and underground bunker contributor, John Atack. Well, what an honor it is for us here today at the Underground Bunker to be speaking to our old friend, John Atack. Hey, Tony. John, thank you for joining me. Yeah, you know, know, when I I got a hold of Mike's book and started reading it, the first thing I started thinking about was where this was going to fit in sort of the pantheon of books. And of course, I mean, the the first book I read, uh, really, of Scientology history was yours. And uh, it educated me so much about uh, where this thing had come from and where it had been. Mm. And uh, I was intensely curious as I was reading Mike's book to think, oh, what's John going to think of that? You know, <laughs> is that is that new? Is that not new? I wasn't sure. So um, I thought we'd just spend some time today and talk it over because it seems like it's an important moment in uh, Scientology history, which you and I are both interested in. Mm. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, Mike, Mike Rinder is... He's a very interesting and very courageous man. And um, for for me, it's a peculiar situation because I only met Mike once while he was in Scientology. And that was in a a room full of lawyers uh, who had flown over from Los Angeles to try and intimidate me into accepting a silence contract and walking away. And so that's the only time we met. And um, the meeting didn't go very well because I asked everybody to tell me their Sea Org ranks. And they wouldn't, and I left the meeting. And um, I, yeah, I wasn't going to take a, a, a payoff anyway. Um, but it, when we met many years later, in, in, and the interview is on my YouTube channel, uh, John Atak Family and Friends, um, he admitted that although he thought I was a decent sort of bloke, um, he would have destroyed me if he possibly could. And that fanaticism is is fascinating to me how somebody can become so engrossed. I mean, Voltaire said, uh, people who believe absurdities will commit atrocities. And Mike not only tells us about Scientology and about Hubbard, and of course he had a very close relationship with Hubbard, um, you know, he'd be alone with him on many occasions when he was a watch messenger. But he not only tells us about that, but he tells us about the struggle when you've come to believe something absolutely. And you know, how on earth you try and extricate your head from that. Um, can, can I say also that, you know, I, I, I have a number of interviews with Mike on my channel, which sure. cover some of the salient points of the book. And some people have, have criticised me for talking with him. <laughs> I should disconnect from him, probably. And it, because he hasn't apologised enough yet. And I think just the very act of standing up you know, and I am one of the people who was harassed by, by, by him. 
I think the very act of standing up and going public, knowing the tsunami of aggression that he would unleash, exonerates him of, of any guilt he might he should feel for for the army dead. So there's my there's my opening. Well, I'm glad you put uh, brought that up. That that's a very interesting way to put it. Um, I think that's uh, an excellent thing to keep in mind. Is uh, sure he was in charge of the OSA and in charge of some of these campaigns, uh, but since coming out, he has really planted a target right on his chest mm-hmm. and has um, uh, withstood an onslaught. Now, in some people's minds, that's not enough. I understand that's a personal thing for them, but it's interesting to hear from someone who was definitely, uh, you know, targeted. To, that you that you feel the the acts that he's gone through uh, to expose Scientology really make up for for that. Yes, it's a sufficient act of contrition. Let's put it that way. And I, I had sixteen years of pretty much daily harassment. So, um, but anybody who's willing to put their head above the parapet and and talk openly about what happened to them, I, I think that does exonerate them. Wow. So what are some of the things that, uh, I mean, I was so curious as I was going through, um, and there would be some detail that I hadn't seen before, and I would immediately wonder, now, is that just because of my poor memory, and I can't remember already reading it in John Atak's book, or Russell Miller's book, or was this something genuinely new? Can you... Can you tell me what were some of the things that you found really interesting, some new sort of perspectives on this Scientology history that helped fill things in for all of us? Sure. It, I mean, because I've interviewed him, you know, at some length, um, during those interviews, I became aware of material details that I didn't have. So, for example, um, he, well, he was about six years old when his parents got involved in Scientology, somewhere around there. It was 1959 when they, they got in. And and he grows up, you know, with this fervour and arrives in Lisbon in 1973 to go onto Hubbard's cattle ferry, um, the Apollo, which was not kind of the cruise liner he'd imagined, um, and talked about, um, you know, the state of, of the ship. And, and for those of us you know, who believed in Scientology, of course, anything that was next to um, Ron Hubbard would be an ideal scene. Those are the words he used. It would be a perfect place to be. So his description in the book, um, you know, he's arrived there. He's meant to be trained as an executive. He's 18. He's meant to be trained to go back to Australia and run an Australian organisation. But he has his passport taken away. He has no money. He he couldn't even afford the cab fare to the airport, let alone the flight back to Australia. And he's told that um, from you know he's been traded. That's the word used by the Australian organisation, traded human trafficking. And he's told you perform whatever duty you're assigned. So he's basically been given into slavery at this point. And his description, and I remember this when I interviewed him when he talked about it. Although I've, I've interviewed so many people. Who, who were on the ships. But the squalid detail doesn't necessarily get through. And so he says in the book, walking into the men's dorm was an onslaught to the senses. The overpowering odour of sweaty bodies and dirty clothes filled the pitch-dark, airless room. There was no porthole, uh, no view or even a light. 
There was no air conditioning. My room at home seemed like a prince's palace, a vision from a past life I wished I could teleport back to. Guided by a flashlight, the birthing in charge suggested I hold on to the back of his shirt and follow him closely. As I looked around, I faintly made out a room about 30 feet wide and 60 feet long, with several rows of triple stacked bunks. With a ceiling height of six and a half feet at the most, the space crammed in about 50 men. My bed, sandwiched in the middle of a triple bunk, was at the very end of the room. Because the Apollo operated on both day and night shifts, there were always people sleeping, and thus no lights. There were also no closets in the men's dorm, so people hung their dirty clothes on hooks next to their beds. Nor were there laundry facilities other than buckets to wash your clothes in salt water and then give a final rinse in precious fresh water. I felt like I had arrived in the black hole of Calcutta. The showers were no better. Thirty seconds was all we could get, as there were only three or four showers available on the ship, and always a line of men standing waiting for their turn. Fresh water was extremely limited, and it was not hot, so I couldn't bear much longer than thirty seconds anyway. Um, so, you find this awful squalid place and you sort of think well no Hallett, Hubbard was an expert on management he, he will have treated people so well he will have looked after them so well and you find that they were actually getting four or five hours sleep a night and you know it's the detail I mean I remember um, somebody who'd been for 10 years in the sea organization telling giving me the tip that if your socks were dirty you could turn them inside out <laughs> and you sort of think this is they're just reduced to this terrible abject state and the other side of that is which i think you know sings out of this book is the but i'm saving the world i i've got to take on all of these terrible uh, conditions because it's a necessity and if i don't if I don't do this, I remember Nora Beth Crest at Toronto when we were at Toronto in 2015, saying that when she wanted a day off, she'd be lectured on, you know, how many millions of people would suffer as a consequence of her having a day off. So this, that intensity, having that um, underlined, I think is, is, is very important. I think, yeah, I think he does a very good job of that. I said that in my review that um, he's, He's conscious of the fact that the reader who's not a Scientologist is going to be constantly asking, what kept you in? Why didn't you run away? Why would you put up with this? Hmm. And so I think uh, maybe as well as anybody in this book, he tries to help the reader understand the mindset yeah. and, and understand why, um, where this dedication comes from and how hard it was to break away from that. I thought that was a very valuable thing in this book. I think it's important. I mean, Lawrence writing in Going Clear can't understand why it was when the FBI launched the largest raid in their history that people who were on the um, rehabilitation project force, the little internal gulag in Scientology, just stayed and waited. They, they didn't walk. They didn't escape. Um, a friend I used to work with said that, that it, it was like with her canaries that when she opened the the cage door they stayed inside and that's to do with psychological slavery um with promising people that you know they they will become like gods if they follow your, your ridiculous hypnotic nonsense uh, i don't think i've ever described it as that but that's what it is 
um, that, that you, you're promised everything you could ever want, and but you've just got to suffer now. And it it, it is that sort of you're on a crusade. You're, you're going to give up every luxury, every amenity. Just I mean, when I talked with Mike, we talked about food, and to me, the thought of eating slop on a daily basis for decades, it, it, it I just can't imagine that. You know that you've become a tool for for this dreadful human being, Ron Hubbard, to be used as he chooses at, at his um, disposal. Um, he, he talks. He talked with me about Bruce Welsh, who you know his first job aboard the Apollo was guarding the cell door for Bruce Welsh, and I I, I did another interview with Karen de la Carrière, who was the, you know, working with Hubbard at the time. So I got two perspectives on what happened to Bruce Welsh. Bruce, and I actually talked to a friend who was aboard the ship with him. Bruce Welsh was a very large man. He was a, a Canadian. Um, and uh, he was a devoted Scientologist who, uh, what actually happened, unbeknownst to Mike, is that he threatened to kill Hubbard. And that meant that he was psychotic, because who in their right mind would want to do that. And so he's locked in a, a cabin, and Mike's first job aboard the Apollo was to make sure that nobody tried to talk to him. And this led to Hubbard claiming that he had found a cure for psychosis, that all you had to do was stop all communication with a person, and they would become sane. And there was no longer any need for psychiatry because of this. And this is like, it's one guy, Bruce Welsh, that's the whole of the research, um, and Bruce Welsh, in fact, left the ship and left Scientology, so it didn't work that well. And Hubbard was, in fact, pu pushing notes under the door. But Welsh was apparently so worked up that he tore apart a metal bedstead and fed the pieces through the porthole. You know, um, so getting into that and, and you know realizing how intense this experience was, and you know how are you meant to keep your head when all around are losing theirs? That everybody is dedicated to this imaginary goal this you know clearing the planet and well and i thought it was just another amazing example where uh mike just somehow found himself at the most amazing points in scientology history because that incident you're talking about became what was known as the introspection rundown this is right. the regimen that hubbard claimed he had discovered on um, how to treat a psychotic person. Mm -hmm. And it was Mike Rinder who was there guarding this guy in the, in the first instance of that. And then that was about what, 73 or something like that. And, yeah. and then um, 22 years later, another person being subjected to the introspection rundown by the name of Lisa McPherson dies on them. And then it's Mike Rinder who's flown out to Clearwater to deal with the legal fallout. So that's another thing that's, I think, so uh, really fascinating about this book is that Mike just repeatedly found himself in the right time, in the, in the right place at the right time to give us a window on where this organization has been. It's, it's really quite remarkable, isn't it? Hmm. And he bridges because he um, was often with Hubbard um, he then bridges into the Miscavenger, uh, right. Miscavenger's his takeover, and he is there at key events. I mean, one of one of the things for years, once I'd heard 
um, you know, you have the the deposition of um, Pat Broker, Pat and Annie Broker, and it. I think Hubbard probably did appoint them to take Scientology over. Um, by this time, Hubbard was demented, and you know, he was suffering from alcoholism and taking all sorts of uh, medications, which of course were found at autopsy in his system, the brief autopsy that was done. But I think he probably did promote the brokers to, to take over. And there's this incident where people are sent to take the filing cabinets from broker's office. And my immediate thought when I first heard about this, which had been in the late 80s, was, ah, Miscavige thought that the missing upper OT levels, right. the nine upwards, would be in these cabinets. And I mean, you're the man who um, disclosed to the world that there were what, two private detectives who for 24 years, at a cost of, I think it was $11 million, were tailing broker because Miscavige has nothing. You know, he's, he doesn't have these purported 15 levels that exist above um, OT7. That actually connects into the Bruce Welsh story too, because I think it's list 11, which is meant to have come from OT22, that the stuff with Bruce Welsh was not only used for the introspection rundown, but also for this list 11. Um, so, it, you know, it all sort of ties together. Um, we, we find, you know, he was there at crucial moments um, and um, gives us information that, you know, that does tie things up, that, that helps us to understand better, that we went from Hubbard, who is a, you know, a narcissistic, manic, depressive psychopath, um, possibly with temporal lobe epilepsy. I think he probably did have that. We move from him and his fairly petty sadism, sadism nonetheless, to Miscavige, who is a quite different order of uh, creature, you know, and a thug fundamentally. You know, the, the amount of violence that he's spoken about in the book is shocking even now. I mean, and I've been hearing about his violence since the Mission Holders Conference in 1982, but it, it brings it up that you can have somebody running this organization, and because nobody who's involved, you know, if, if, if the police went to somebody who was on the rehabilitation project force um, when it was running and, and said, do you want to leave? They'd say, no, I'm here of my own free will. And with that complexity, that the true believer who, who will do anything uh, for the good of the cause. Right. And um, yeah, I, I, it's interesting to me that, and, and Rinder, I don't think engages in it too much in his book, but there is this disappointment from a lot of longtime Scientologists that are from that era who will try to convince you that, uh, well, I was talking to Jesse Prince just a couple of weeks ago, and he was saying something similar that, you know, un, you know, Hubbard was this, you know, megalomaniac and everything, but, but things were run a little bit more by committee under him. And once Miscavige took over, it was just this one man dictatorship. And how did that happen? And, and you see, you know, a lot of old timers uh, who have left and wonder what happened. They'll go over it and over it. And, and, you know, how did this one man push aside the brokers? Uh, 
and Vicky Asnerin and all these other people. And Mike engages into that somewhat, but it just seems to me, John, maybe you disagree with me, but it just seems to me that L. Ron Hubbard was this megalomaniac who ran this completely undemocratic, top-down organization. And once he died, as much as people thought there might be some committees and some sort of an election or something, it was just the most ruthless person took over. Yeah. And if it hadn't, if it hadn't been David Miscavige, it would have, you know, and that's, that's why Pat Broker is not the leader of Scientology today. He was not ruthless. He did not want to push people out of the way to take over. And so David Miscavige did. And I, I don't know. I just feel like it's sort of this, um, uh, uh just fantasy, uh, wishful thinking to think that there might be that somehow after Hubbard, there would be some sort of reasonable Democrat, more Democrat, Democratic based Scientology. No, and, and as Mike points out, there was always a break on Hubbard, and that was Mary Sue Hubbard, um, that although she too committed atrocities, I mean, she had Otto Rose keel hauled, I mean, you know, put on a rope and dragged underneath the hull of a ship, which could very well have killed him, you know, the Avon River, and, and that initiated overboarding. So, you know, she was not sweetness and light, but she very frequently would stop um, her husband and say, you know, you've got to let people sleep or, you know, <laughs> you have to do something. And Miscavige, there's nobody. He, he you know, and, and I, I mean, very early on, I, I um, corresponded with um, Diane Didi Vogadin, who had, you know, been pretty much Hubbard's immediate deputy. She was the head of um, the Watchdog Committee, the Commodore's Messenger Organization. And she, she, wrote to me about Miscavige and said, well, he, he was not really, he had no significant position. He was the action chief. He was meant to sort out the 300 outstanding writs and subpoenas against Hubbard so Hubbard could come back into public life, and uh, which, of course, he signally failed to do. Um, but, but he had no other job. But she, she made this one comment about him, which has always stayed with me, and that, you know, this was about 1984 that she wrote to me, that... If you asked him to do something, so you'd say to him, David, there's a wall there and I, I, I want you to get rid of it. He would put his head down and charge. <laughs> and it's said that when he was a cameraman, you know, age 17 on, on Hubbard's bizarre technical films, all of which have been withdrawn, uh, we note, because they're so bloody awful, um, that when he was a cameraman, he was the only person who was willing to say no to Hubbard. Um, mm. you know, that he'd stand up to him. And so Hubbard, you know, I've never heard this before, but in this book, he um, Mike says that that he called him Misk, as in Misk. yeah, that was an right. interesting new detail, right? Yeah. And so there's some sort of relationship there. Uh, it would be great to see more of you know how Miscavige actually gained power, and I think you and I both know a lot more about that than Mike directly experienced, but. Well, well, there's an interesting, I thought one de- great detail that was new for me was that um, uh, after the FBI raid, Scientology was raided by the FBI in 1977, and uh, 11 Scientologists ended up uh, going to prison, including Mary Sue, Aaron Hubbard's wife. And he, she, you know, he allowed, you know, Ron Hubbard allowed his wife to take the fall for him, basically. Yeah, she made, and, she made a deal and signed a stipulation the evidence of more than 200 pages admitting everything on the grounds that he would not be prosecuted. And um, so the, the Guardian's office, the 
the spy wing that was associated with Mary Sue then had to be gotten rid of. And um, Mike describes how he was flown out to St. Hill. I didn't know about this. This was new to me that he was, he was one of four messengers who were sent to St. Hill in the UK uh, by David Miscavige to oversee uh, the guardian's office uh, as it was about to be dismantled yep. and replaced by the CMO and, you know, you know, you know, David Miscavige's crew. And there's this great line uh, Mike has. He says, in Scientology, history is written by those who have the ear of Hubbard mm. and that no longer described Mary Sue. It was now Miscavige. Yeah. So that was very interesting that, you know, and, and then, um, um, yeah, he, basically Miscavige, and with, with Hubbard's approval, Miscavige then sort of banished Mary Sue to a very nice prison, which was this house in Los Feliz, California, uh, a very nice house she lived her years out in. Mm. But uh, it was very clear that she no longer had any power in Scientology. And, and we have from elsewhere the story of Miscavige throwing a heavy glass ashtray at her during their confrontation. And also that um, she kept, when she came out, well, she was in prison. She was in prison for a year, I think. When she came out, she kept writing to her husband. You know, having made this incredible sacrifice, she was really not a well woman. Um, you know, Scientology had not given her perfect glowing health. Um, she suffered from hyperglycemia. And she kept writing letters, and the instruction from Hubbard was that he didn't want anything negative, what Scientologists call N-theta, or enturbulated theta. Nothing negative. So I was told by somebody who was involved with this, they'd photocopy the letters, and they'd take a razor blade and cut out anything negative. And he said most of the letters to to Hubbard, and he didn't reply to any of them, um, read, Dear Ron, love Mary Sue. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, dear. And, I mean, he he says, I think one of the very touching things was him, you know, of course he opens the book, as you say, in your excellent review, with a letter to his adult children, both in their 40s, who he's barely spent any time with, because you know he he was um, busy saving the world, and they went through the cadet organisation as children, so they have worked for Scientology all of their lives. Um, but along the way, we also we find out that he was forced to marry his wife Kathy because there had been a a night of fun in the Sea Org where people had got drunk and things had got a little out of hand, and they were then told, right, well, if you slept with somebody, you now have to marry them. So. It's not quite as bad as Sun Myung Moon. At least he had met her before. But um, then she falls pregnant and the baby dies uh, from sudden infant death syndrome. And he talks about having 45 minutes of Scientology auditing to get over the grief. And this, you know, he talks later about not being able to go to his father's funeral. And this is something that I've found is so common, you know, with hundreds of Scientologists I've I've spoken to over the years that they'll have lost a parent or, or you know, a partner or a child, somebody they loved, and they'll have been told, well, they've just dropped the body. And they will sort of somehow manage to repress the emotion that they should be feeling. And then 20 years later, or however long, it suddenly hits them, you know, like a, a hurricane. And right. they will then grieve. And, and, you know, grief, grieving is a very normal process. Um, to have that closed down, 
you know, because you've got to be on purpose. You've got to be, you know, following and upholding command intention at all times. So you, you're being turned, your humanity is being taken away from you at every step. I, um, when we were at Toronto, um, Hannah Whitfield was talking and um, she used the word terminal, referring to a, another person, a term, right. this Scientology term. And she realized the moment she'd said it, this kind of dehumanizing way of um, relating to other people, that, that is absolutely at the core of Scientology. Oh, yeah. No, there's a lot. Yeah, and I, I, I mentioned that uh, that was such a, uh, a fascinating way to frame the book because then you know, no matter where the story's going, you know there's not going to be a happy ending. I mean, he's 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 uh, you know got this wonderful second family. He's, his boys are great, and um, but uh, it's just this constant source of you know hurt for him mm. that that his daughter is on this bizarre campaign uh and i feel for her i mean at some i hope someday in her life uh we're talking about taryn his oldest daughter that she will at some point have this moment of clarity and realize how she's simply been used as a tool by david miscavige in this very cruel game that he's playing um and it's just it's heartbreaking to see uh, but it's also so ineffective. I, you know, I, I, I know you've seen this in other campaigns. They do it against me too, is they find something that they think is going to hurt their enemy. And then they just keep pushing that button, pushing that button, even though outsiders know, well, it's Scientology, they're lying it and it doesn't work. No. Um, but it's but Scientology uh, says it, it isn't true. I mean, the, the dead agent pack as, as they call it when they attack somebody to make them a dead agent uh, by ruining their reputation. Um, the, the, the one on me, people, you know, some of the things in it are true. <laughs> you know, I have, you know, I was only 19 when I got involved in Scientology. I hadn't had much time to be a bad person. Um, but yeah, you know, I'd been busted for, for having a tiny amount of cannabis resin when I was 17. Um, and again, for having a single three inch high cannabis plant um, when I was 19. So, you know, they'll put that stuff out. But what tends to happen is that people will see this stuff and they won't believe any of it because of the source it comes from. You know, so you know, the other things they've said about me being a heroin addict, attempting murder, a rapist, a child molester, they have no basis in fact. <laughs> oh, dear. I mean, and he says, there's a point where he says, I was convinced Hubbard understood things about me that I did not know about myself. I had to look into my heart and with Scientology auditing, counselling, uncover the evil that lurked within and eradicate it. The reason I am not doing well and am so unhappy is that I have unhandled false and evil purposes. So this, and it's, it's a tactic that's used by many groups, this idea you have an invisible enemy inside you that you don't know about, but Ron Hubbard or whoever knows about it, and they're going to disclose this. And it's a nonsense. You know, we, we have unconscious processes, but there is no unconscious mind plotting against us. And there are no, well, in my case, anyway, there are no demons inside us, you know, clouding our thought. We're responsible for what we do. And you know, we, to, to that, that sort of thing, you know, that, that you are 
always in a child-to-parent relationship, almost an infant-to-parent relationship, you know, a preteen thing. And it's something I often observe, particularly with people who were long-term sea organization members. When they left, they were about 12 years old. No matter how old they were, their ability to deal with the world was like a 12-year-old. And they would then often go through in a kind of accelerated teen period, you know, where they'd grow their hair long and smoke dope or, you know, do whatever they did in adolescence and then come out of it and, and, and join the world. But keeping people in that state of dependence upon you, where, where you can't actually become an adult, you can't actually fully develop yourself, you have to comply absolutely with the wishes of a maniac. You know, a man who had absolutely no concern about other people. I got into a little bit of a thing with Chris Shelton uh, about a year ago, and it, we were talking, and, and he talked about, he, he said, well, what about Hubbard's compassion? And I said, I, I'm not aware of any example <laughs> of Hubbard's compassion. And he told me this story. He said, well, there was this woman, and he'd shouted at her, and then he, he walked up to her, and I said, and he said, are you still mad at me? And Chris was... Yeah, it's like, yeah, I've heard that story from so many people. He had a stock phrase that when he had reamed somebody out and left them in a puddle on the floor, he'd leave them for a couple of hours, realise that they weren't working properly anymore and go up and say, are you still mad at me? And put his arm around them. It, he really, I think, was a solipsist. He just thought we were creatures of his imagination. He didn't care anything for us. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned that Mary Sue then played this sort of uh, uh, role where it was her job to kind of keep him from going too far mm. from trying to smooth things over f with people that maybe he'd shoot out or, or whatever. Mm. Because uh, the people I interview about Shelley describe her that way. Yeah. That, yes, Shelley could be a hard-ass, mm. hard-nosed executive in her own right, but what they remembered is when, you know, Dave came through like a hurricane and just, you know, caused so much havoc and hurt people being physically beat up, beat them up. Yeah. Shelly was then there to like, are you okay? Can I get you something? You know, exactly. and, um, and that was her role. But what's interesting then, and, and then they both got rid of them. Right. I mean, yeah. um, uh, Hubbard ended up in hiding and never saw his wife again. With Miscavige, it's the other way around. He's put her in hiding, mm -hmm. and he's uh, doesn't have her around anymore. And I, the other thing I've been asking people, um, I, I don't remember who it was, um, said something to Oh, I think it was Mark Headley, mm -hmm. pointed out to me that Jaeger, Midhoff, Will here, these guys would go bowling with Dave on the weekends. <laughs> and I thought, well, wait a minute. You know... How How is it that, you know, he creates the hole and put all these guys in prison and they're basically the only friends he's ever had? Mm. So what does that leave him with? You know, I, I just, uh, I think you're right. In some ways, he's like Hubbard, but cranked up to 11 mm. as far as the ruthlessness and the... Uh, Hubbard on steroids. Yeah. Probably yeah. literally at some point. Yeah, you know, given his his asthma when he was young, right. um, I, I I'm sure you you feel the same way. But when I interviewed his dad, Ron Miscavige, uh, it was really hard to think that a man who was so sweet natured had, you know, sired such a malevolent um, child. 
Um, and and you know, Ronnie was still trying to Ron was still trying to justify it. I mean, I remember him saying uh, in in the interview that um, it, it, David was fine until 1993. <laughs> he goes, not really, Ron. <laughs> no, he played the trumpet for me, so that was good. Um, I mean, and some of the horror. I mean, one of the the things that 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 I I think really has to be understood is, is you know, the extreme punishments that that were being issued. And so I'm, I've interviewed a few people. I'm sure you have, who were sentenced to clean rats' alley um, in the big blue buildings, and. Um, Mike has this typical of Sea Org renovation projects everywhere, and especially those employing RPF labor. There were no proper tools and equipment to do the job. We did demolition work with absolutely no protective glasses, gloves, or helmets. We used rollers to paint thousands of square feet of walls when it could have been done in a fraction of the time with a sprayer. We cracked cement blocks with sledgehammers rather than jackhammers. It was intended to be hard manual labor and power tools would have defeated that objective. Nobody was actually trained in the skills necessary to do any of the tasks we were assigned. I mean, I saw this. I headed the renovation of the Deansgate Bank building in Manchester because I knew a little bit about, you know, home improvements. And the people they assigned to me, you know, they just had no clue of, of how to do even the simplest you know, decorating tools, I mean, uh, decorating tasks. I remember... One guy coming to me with a grin on his face, having stabbed a door with his paintbrush to the point where it had, you know, <laughs> splayed out. Um, it, it was learn as you go. According to Herbert, Sea Org members are supposed to be able to do any job assigned, whether they've been trained or not. You know, if you need a nuclear power station building and you've got some damp string, a Sea Org member can do it. Um, the solution was never to get better equipment, give more realistic targets or add more manpower. The answer was invariably work longer. During these renovation stints, we went days on end with no sleep at all. When we were told we could sleep for an hour or 90 minutes, we would lie down on the bare concrete floor right there. I was assigned to clean Rat's Alley. This was the crawl space between the main galley where the grease and slime ended up as the ovens and meal prep stations were cleaned up. It was a space about two feet high, inhabited by numerous rats, quite large rats, according to the people I've interviewed, who lived on the food waste that accumulated there. To clean Rat's Alley, I had to lie on a furniture dolly on my stomach and wheel myself around with a flashlight to scrape grease. I mean, another punishment there was um, uh, cleaning out the crematorium. Uh, so, you know, and there were still human remains in there. Um, and just this... How could people treat other people this way? How could they become used to this? And you come back to this, well, we're saving the world. Right. I remember talking to the guy who um, he bragged to me that he'd actually taken a day off course so that he could go and get the Foster report, the British government report, the day it was published. So he was, you know, and this is a dozen years later, he's bragging that he did that. And when I said to him, you know, I, I think, that Scientology is a fascistic organization. You know, it certainly isn't democratic. And he said it has to be because of what we don't have time, you know, to play around. And that that bizarre attitude that we have to break all the rules of morality so that we can become moral, you know, which we, we hear all together too often. Um 
Yeah, I mean, it, it's uh, I've tried to explain to people that you know the question I always get, uh, or I don't know if it's the question I always get, or the question I always being seen posed is why why can't Tom Cruise see that he is you know aligned with this crazy group and that these ideas are insane and i always come back with he can't understand why you haven't joined yeah i mean it's such a powerful idea once you adopt the idea that l ron hubbard really did discover the secrets of the universe and that this only scientology really understands what's going on that that this is a prison planet like the matrix and the rest of us are just sleepwalking through what life and only scientology knows what's going on once you buy into that idea it's incredibly powerful because because then like you say everything else is seen through that filter so oh we're treating people badly yeah but on the larger scale this is what we have to do to get to this higher state that L. Ron Hubbard promised. Yeah. And and you start getting, you know, I've I've tried to understand the mindset. You know, I I I sort I left within a few weeks. I, I found myself in the bizarre position that I was at the very center of the independent Scientology movement in Britain. And I didn't believe anymore. <laughs> and it it was but I had such a loyalty for, for you know others who'd been through the experience, and of course my experience, my nine years was was really like a luxury cruise. Um, I, I was ne- you know, I was never humiliated or abused. I was shouted at twice. I shouted back. You know, I didn't know I wasn't meant to. So I wasn't in the sea organization. I wasn't on staff. I'd had a relatively easy time of it. But I, I think it was the unfairness. You know, that child sense of how unfair it was that we'd been so consistently lied to and realizing you know that hubbard was a confidence trickster there, there were, it's impossible to think otherwise because he contradicts himself all over the place he tells you know as you know the guy who started in on his biography and worked with russell miller on it we found so often that he'd completely contradicted some previous story about himself and i come back to this frequently this man said, honesty is sanity. He said, the road to truth must be trod with true steps. He was a liar, not based upon what anybody else says, but based upon the comparison of his own statements. And so you, you have this thing. Why didn't we see that? You know, why didn't we understand that? When I came back, I read Dianetics, Modern Science and Mental Health three times when I was in Scientology. When I came back to critique it, I couldn't believe that there are so many contradictions in it. You know, uh, Dianetics was developed without the use of hypnosis. Uh, Dianetics was developed with the use of hypnosis. They're on different pages, but it's in the same book. So you've got this, you know, as you know in the pieces I wrote for The Bunker, that I started to, to go, well, this is a double bind. This is, you know, which Hubbard also talked about. If you give people contradictory information, they won't know what to do. They'll become confused, and they'll come and ask you what to do. And I became interested in the, in the whole psychology of it, the whole mindset of it. And you know, what are the traps and how is it that people, that we don't see it? You know, I, um, I, I was in touch with a, a wonderful professor of psychology, Kapta Akhmedova. She did a two-year study on the Black Widows suicide bombers in Chechnya. 
And I contacted her because I, I, she, she'd done this great thing where she'd managed to get 100 people, largely children, out of hospital who were exhibiting profound symptoms of what, what is called mass sociogenic illness. I mean, they were projectile vomiting and all sorts of things. And it took her two years to do this. And I put this story in, in the book I was writing, Opening Our Minds. And I didn't have enough details. And my editor, Johnny Jacobson, uh, the wonderful Johnny Jacobson, said, get in touch with her. And she was an alumni of an American university, although she was Chechenian. And within 24 hours, I had this, this email back from her saying how much she'd liked my book. And I'm sort of going, what are you doing reading a book about Scientology? And she then went, it's really helpful to give to terrorists, <laughs> to people who've been radicalised. It's like, what is she talking about? And I didn't understand it until... We re-released the book and I asked her for a puff piece. And it's basically the thought that I am a reasonably intelligent person. And, you know, and I was fooled by this. So therefore, and I think it is that question which um, anybody has to ask, having been involved in such a system, why did I fall for it? And usually it's because of idealism. It's because we do live in a corrupt world. <laughs> And, you know, especially when you're a teenager, I was 19 when I got involved, you want to belong to a group that's going to do something about it. Right. And if you join Greenpeace and you start wondering about why the material on genetic modification is, you know, their their own head of science actually left over them, you know, you Kind of, or, or if you're in the Catholic Church and you, you hear about child abuse, you don't want the organization to have a bad reputation. There's always that um, my side bias, confirmation bias of the cognitive dissonance of, you know, I, I, I can't believe that my, organ, you know, my organization overall is good. And we all, we all suffer from it. It's just that it becomes fervent in groups that, that are fervent, like Scientology. So... Again, we come back to to Mike, trapped in this this thought that there must be something wrong with him, you know, rather than it's a right. from beginning to end. It does not work. It doesn't achieve any of the things it claims. Well, uh, you brought up independent Scientology, and I wanted to touch on that just mm -hmm. briefly because um, there are still people who apparently are under the impression that Mike is still some kind of Scientologist. And that just means that they haven't paid attention no, uh, to his blog, to his blog or to no. his, uh, his show with Leah. Um, but Mike, like so many people did go through that progression where, you, you know, a lot of Scientologists come out because they're, they finally can't take Dave Miscavige's deprivations mm -hmm. any longer. They can't, they can't take the, the extreme fundraising or whatever. And they come out, but they but they sort of wistfully wish they could get back to a kind of L. Ron Hubbard-centered Scientology mm -hmm. that's grown up in their mind as some sort of ideal. And so they become independent Scientologists, and they, 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 they practice Scientology outside of the church. When I went down to Florida for the first time to meet Mike Rinder 10 years ago and sat down with him for – and we talked about a lot of these things – he was definitely still an independent Scientologist at that, that time. He didn't hesitate when I asked him what his OT level was. He told me and everything. And I, he left out a really fun little detail from the book. But I, I, I don't know if he, he told you, 
one of the things he did get very involved with some of these other, uh, you know, Marty Rathbun and Robert yeah. Allenblad, that they were actually thinking about, you know, creating their own independent church of Scientology, mm-hmm. mainly as a way because they knew it would drive David Miscavige crazy, right? <laughs> I mean, that was that was always the main goal. It wasn't. I don't think they were really all that interested, but they they. I don't know if you've heard this one, John, and I'm and I'm sorry he left it out of the book, but. Um, you know, Robert Omblad is this inventor that was trying to invent clean ice that that got harassed so badly because he dared to give Mike Rinder a job mm-hmm. when Mike left Scientology. Uh, they they knew they were being watched and surveilled and spied on. So Mike and Robert Omblad and I don't know if Marty was involved, somebody else, they purposely floated the rumor that they were going to buy a building in Clearwater, right under David Miscavige's nose, and make it the first physical independent Church of Scientology, mm-hmm. right inside the flag land base. And they just floated that rumor, and sure enough, not too much longer, Church of Scientology paid like twice what that building was worth <laughs> just to make sure that they didn't get their hands on it. Yeah, I, I mean, it was a wonderful stunt, you know. Yeah. And, and it, I mean, it's incredible that, that, you know, probably Scientology, the International Association of Scientologists is down to about 20,000 members now. Um, I'm not sure that the whole thing was ever over 50,000, but um, we have a situation where there are probably more independents, uh, you know, people in the Ronsorg or the Free Zone, the terms that Captain Bill Robertson invented for them, they're probably more independence than there are fee-paying, card-carrying members, um, largely because of the Russian and, and German contingents. And I know that you you get into this to some... I try and keep away from this stuff, Danny. Um, <laughs> but, but sometimes they'll make these pronouncements about, you know, the, the new technology they've developed. You know, of course, um, the, the late not great, but remarkable Captain Bill, who I knew pretty well. Um, he developed a whole extension of, of the OT levels that where you did each OT level according to the seven divisions of the organizing board. So you now had 56 OT levels to do. You know? Oh, jeez. And, you know, this is a I mean, that's a whole other story, isn't it? Captain Bill is just, just right. a remarkable story. But, you know, a six-foot-four former Mississippi motorcycle cop who used to dress up in a ball gown at eight o'clock every evening and sing love songs to Ron Hubbard in the mirror, was the founder of Ron's Org and the founder of the Free Zone. And I don't think it's got a lot better since. You know, um, they, I mean, it, there's something. I mean, I think that that you know, Mike definitely has plenty of material for a follow-up. That. Um, when I talked with him about the, harass- the harassment that was visited on me, he didn't really remember it. I, th- I think it was just such a fog of sleep deprivation and you know being um, balled at by David Miscavige that, that he genuinely doesn't remember the minutiae of the projects. But it would be good to see, you know, I think there's definitely a whole book in what was done to Jerry Armstrong, to Dennis Ehrlich, the Swedish campaign. and he tantalizingly mentions one name and i wonder if you know anything about this he mentions laura terrapin 
Yes, that was very interesting. The people of the LMT, this was uh, after Lisa McPherson died in 1995. Uh, a New England businessman named Bob Minton um, was very, was wanted to lead sort of a protest movement. So he created an actual business called the Lisa McPherson Trust, which um, bought a building in Clearwater and they were very involved in protests and Scientology sent in a mole. And I think, I don't, I think they knew fairly early on that that was not her real name and that she was a spy. I don't think that's new in this book. No. Um, I mean, it, se- it seemed familiar to me. So I don't know. Um, I mean, it, it's a great detail and I'm glad he included it. Mm. But, um, but I, I don't, I don't think, I don't think that was known before this. Yeah. And I, I mean, the Lisa McPherson trust, it, it, it's sad that, that it was not successful in getting justice for, for the killing of, of Lisa McPherson. Laura Terrapin, and it's as far as I know, it's uh, an it's an assumed identity. It, you know, there, there is apparently somebody who is called Terrapin out there, and she stole this identity. And he doesn't tell us anything. He just says she had previously infiltrated the cult awareness network. Now, there were fifty four cases um, brought by Kendrick Moxon, the head of Scientology's litigation unit and an unindicted co-conspirator in the Guardian's office case, um, 54 lawsuits were brought against the Cult Awareness Network. Uh, I think Dan Leopold ended up trying to resist those. I had a little bit to do with it. I was over in LA and, and provided, I think, a few documents. But the first 53 cases were won, and the last one was lost. And so much of it was down to this woman, Laura Terrapin. And the tragedy is that nothing has risen from those ashes, that when the Cult Awareness Network went, nothing came forward to replace it. You know, you have yeah. the International Cultic Studies Association, but there's a more an academic sort of um, thing. And the Cult Awareness Network was very effective. They just wandered over into that territory where they were willing to recommend kidnap deprogramming. And... Yeah. Uh, well, Mike does mention a couple other spy names um, that I think we had heard before. I guess um, regarding some of these OSA details, uh, you know, I've been targeted myself over the years, and there have been some pretty elaborate operations run against me and my family. <clears throat> and as a target, I can tell you that one, I've basically done my best just to ignore it or, you know, not let it bother me. But one thing that does, you know, it is the not knowing that, yes. that will nag at you. It's like, how did they know to to call that person? How did they figure this out about my life? You know, and that I'm sure, you know, there's Jerry Armstrong was harassed for years and years. I mean, he's still in Canada because he can't come back to the U.S. Yeah. Um, I, I I would like to have seen a little bit more detail. I think... There's a lot, there's so, you know, Mike covers so much in this book. Mm-hmm. It's astounding yeah. how much material he gets through in this book. Yes. Um, but I, you know, when, when, when he and Christy were going through the harassment and there was this woman, Heather McAdoo in their neighborhood that was spying on them. And there was the camera and the, you know, bird house and stuff. I just thought that's, I, that's so interesting to read. I wish there was just a little bit more of that. Mm from back when these other people were being harassed under Mike Rinder. I, I would like to a few more details, but
But like, you know, I think he, the amount of material he does cover is, it's just amazing. I remember I was about five or six chapters in and I thought, dude, you're only in the seventies. You got to get all the way up to 2017 in the aftermath. How are you going to do this? So I, I was just super impressed at how much he, he put in. And so I hate to, uh, criticize for, uh, you know, that there's not this detail or that detail because the amount of detail he got in, it's, it's just, a, it's a great book. And I, I, re- I just highly recommend it to anybody. I agree. And, and I think it's beyond criticism. You know, you, you, you've got a few hundred pages to do what you're going to do. And, you know, I mean, with, you know, when I published, um, let's sell these people a piece of blue sky, the, the original in 1990, I was aware that it represented less than 5% of the material I'd I'd gathered and you have to choose which stories you're going to tell. Um, and you know, I think he does tell the, the, the focus of this for me is his story. And, you know, there are some of the things he did. Uh, and I, so I, I wouldn't in any way criticize him for not going into detail. I just urge him to write another book immediately. So that yeah. we can find out that I, there are some interesting things, um, about David Miscavige, the current um, Führer, as I like to think of it as Scientology. He says, uh, for example, David Miscavige once described me to the assembled members of the Watchdog Committee, the highest ranking people in Scientology, as the spawn of a retarded sloth's DNA. <laughs> that was quite poetic. I've never heard. <laughs> um, and it, for a high school dropout. Yeah, for a high school dropout. And, and then he says, once he'd started uh, you know, shoving them in the hole, he appeared in, in um, CMO International with a pile of white paper plates adorned with magic marker. Each one had a smiley face drawn on it, but without the smile, the mouth was a straight line. He called them pie faces. These paper plate masks were handed out to everyone, and we were all required to hold them in front of our faces while he addressed us. I would rather look at those pie faces than your actual pie faces. We had to keep the pie face masks in place during ent- any interaction with him. This is this is madness. This is just um, it's then, a wonderful image too, and I, and that was new to me. I, I that was amazing. Oh, I hadn't heard of the pie faces, and then he talks about being um, at Saint Hill in in Sussex in England. Um, he ordered his then right hand man Greg Will here to take Heber, the president of the Church of Scientology, Mark Mark Yeager. Guillaume, Guillaume Lesevre, and me, and throw us in the lake at the bottom of the St. Hill property. It was a chilly, overcast November afternoon. And this is England. That means cold. Will here allowed us to take off our shoes and strip down to pants and shirts before we waded into the freezing cold, almost black water. The bottom was stagnant, slimy mud. Our assignment was to remain in the lake, clearing away weeds and debris for a few days until Miscavige decided he wanted to return to California. Um, And none of us uttered a word of protest or disagreement that would have made our circumstances even worse. Um, This is going on, and it's going on under the name of religion and, and, you know, with the sort of protection that the law affords in various um, places in the world. I'm incredulous that, that this kind of practice can go on um and he's he's not you know sanctioned in some way legally um but that's well and and to to put a you know a a point on that i mean mike 
escaped in 2007. He went public uh, in 2009 with the Tampa Bay Times and BBC and and Brian Seymour in Australia. Um, he was in. He was one of the main characters in Going Clear yep. in 2015. Uh, he and Leah Remini had this prominent series on cable television from 2016 to 2019. Um, and none of, he has never been sued, never even a threat of, I mean, I'm sure they've threatened A&E, but they never, nothing like that. And yet, after all these years of saying all of these things and writing about them at his blog and putting them in, you know, movies and TV, CBS canceled his appearance on Wednesday because Scientology's attorneys uh, got noisy with them. So it's it's just amazing that as much as um, uh, you and I can see, I don't know, it just it's just amazing to me that e- even now that these networks can be shuttered into silence by Scientology's antics. Yeah, I mean, I was asked on to... Um, Donahue, Solly Jesse, Raphael, uh, twice in each occasion, Larry King. And every time they cancelled um, because, you know, material was fed to them. In fact, on Larry King, I was I was meant to be flying over to New York. Uh, this is before he started working with the Russians, of course. I was meant to be flying over to New York and they were going to put Earl Cooley, who was a very well-known trial attorney, um, up against me. And Cooley had, had done the third OT level. And, you know, at the last minute, I'm all getting ready to pack my bag. I'm calling and told, no, you won't be going on. I've so many times been filmed for pieces and they manage through their lawyers to, you know, convince the um, the network to, to withdraw. Uh, I, I think there was a real turning point with, because of the time, because of Rich Behar's, um, article in time that that they expended so much effort i mean I, i've been told it, they spent about 20 million dollars on that case and the time spent about 2 million in response to it but it dragged on for 20 years and miscavige seemed to make a sea change at that point and say you know because we got i think when they with the irs when they won against the irs in 93 they dropped 3000 suits in a single day this is undoubtedly the most litigious organization that has ever existed on the face of earth. You know, they issued tens of thousands of suits. And suddenly Miscavige went, you know, the money is draining out um, like a serious wound. Um, It's not, it's giving us terrible press. And so he went against the Hubbard idea that that you, you wipe out anybody who comes against you you know, by using the law to harass, to, to use Owen Hubbard's famous phrase. And that paved the way for Janet Reitman's Inside Scientology, um, which, as you know, I'm a little bit sore about because it's a, a rewrite of my own work, but never mind, um, or much of it is. The first seven chapters she credits to, to me and to Russell Miller um, in her reference notes. But it... There'd been 20 years without a book being issued with, with so little publicity and the floodgates opened. You know, and thankfully you were there to actually uh, 
provide accurate information and make sure that everything was was done in a in a proper fashion and uh, which has been remarkable and uh, i think everybody should pause now and, and and give you five minutes of applause on the state <laughs> oh come on well one of the things that that that, that got me was was reading about the whole and again you you've helped to to make that very public and he says there were at least 140 hole dwellers at its peak yeah. so they've right. packed in the senior executives of scientology into these incredibly unsavory conditions and it reminded me and i am often reminded of this of the chinese thought reform camps the way that he talks about the murder routine where you accuse something accuse somebody of something far more serious than the things they've done to get them to confess to lesser things. Well, that's done in the Chinese camps. The written confessions are very important there. Um, but there's also this essential method, which has become, is called the hot seat in, in many authoritarian groups, which was developed um, in those Chinese camps in the, in the 1940s, where you have a room full of people screaming abuse at you. And he says... Yeah. New arrivals were like chickens thrown into an alligator-infested pond with people fighting to be the one to confront the newcomer. So you've got these soul-destroying approaches. Um, you know, he talks about... Um, yeah, and we've, you know, we've heard descriptions of the whole over the years. Uh, numerous people have been in it that came out. Um, and we've known about feeding, being fed slop and only getting a shower once, you know, being able to leave one, one time a day to get a shower. But you're right. That's what he adds in this book in such a depth that I don't think we've had before is the mental side of it. And these games they were playing on each other and just every single day, this horrible, uh, you know, confess, confess, confess. I don't, how, and that they've been in there for years, John, I, I don't understand how they could keep that up every day. No. And again, you know, with the Chinese camps, people could be in there for anywhere up to eight years. Um, And what's been a bit lost in the the sort of cult countercult, cult apologist arguments um, is the idea that brainwashing, see now the Chinese term for it, is a purely psychological process. And it isn't. And very much as he says, slapping, punching, and kicking were the typical punishments for recalcitrants, uh, meted out by the whole's denizens to one another. And so you set people on each other physically, not just psychologically. Um, he talks about, I think, his last encounter with Marty Rathbun, who's put into the hole before Marty leaves. And I don't really have anything good to say about Marty Rathbun, so I'm not. Um and he says, Marty sat on my chest with his hands around my throat as the mob chanted, come clean, Rinder. And his own wife, Kathy, has been put in there. And she, as he says, got in on the act, accusing him of having had sex with Vicky Asneran. So, you know, how on earth do, do you maintain your equanimity in an environment like that? How do you not break? I, I think... But then there's that there's that amazing moment. This was one of my favorite things in the whole book. Was uh, and sorry for spoilers, uh, people listening. If you haven't yeah, read, this is an yet. alert. Put your phones um, in your ears. They're in that moment, and Marty's on his chest, and he's you know people are chanting, and and mm-hmm. under at a low level, so nobody around them can hear it. Mike says to Marty, 
I'm, I'm tired of this game. Mm. And Marty says to him, I am too. Yeah. And climbs and, off and, and leaves. There's that little, there's that little admission to each other that they know this is all just an act, a game. It's, it's and and they've had it. Hmm. And uh, and then very soon after that, they were both out. So, um, well, uh, Marty left three years before Mike did, but but uh, they were both on their way out after that. That's for sure. Let me just, uh, I wanted to provide a couple of uh, um, not corrections, but details. You had mentioned uh, the size of the IS. And that it, yeah, you're, it's it's probably only about twenty thousand. That's the number of the International Association of Scientologists. That's the membership organization of Scientology. And you can't take uh, the courses unless you remember you get a six month free membership. But after that, you have to pay up. But it's an indication of how big this thing is. And um, you mentioned that you didn't think it was ever bigger than fifty. Uh, Jefferson Hawkins was on the podcast a few weeks ago, and he said at one point he actually got. The document because he was doing the marketing mm. and he got a documentation and found that they had a master list. Okay. And you have to understand this is anybody who had ever joined, not who was currently active. Yeah. But but the IAS, the full IAS membership for all time was a hundred thousand. Wow. And and again, that's not that's not who was at to its foundation in what, nineteen eighty four, eighty five? Exactly. So, so, you know, that's, so Scientology's never had the millions that it said. The other number that I wanted to just uh, interject was, um, the so, so Time Magazine came out with this story in 1991 by Rich yeah. Parr. Scientology sued for $400 million. As you say, Scientology probably spent $20 million pursuing that losing lawsuit. And Scientology, and but Time spent about two. Bahar told me it was more like six to eight million. That Time Magazine yeah. spent defending itself and ultimately won, but it created a chilling effect. Other n- yeah. n- news organizations did not want to go near Scientology for at least another ten years. There was very little coverage of it after that because of that lawsuit. So I just wanted to interject those two yeah. numbers. I mean, I think that Sell These People a Piece of Blue Sky was was the last book, so published in nineteen ninety. Uh, was last booking in the English language until Janet Reitman's book in, I think, 2011. And so many times I worked on stories, and you must have done this too. I'd work on a story for six months or a year, and then suddenly it'd be dropped. Um, the famous, wonderful uh, Sapel Welkos articles in June uh, 91, was it? Um, yeah. In the LA Times. Uh, I worked with them over a five year period. And um, I did get a free baseball cap with the LA Times logo. So it wasn't all bad. Well, it was actually given to the other guy who was researching with me, but he didn't want it, so I got it. But um, I can't remember whether it was Bob Wilkos or Joel Sapal who, who told me um, they dropped the story. The LA Times was just like, we don't want to do this. We, and they'd been working on it for three years. And then there was some kind of, um, you know, fancy thousand dollar a plate dinner and the proprietors of the LA Times were there and it was pointed out to them what the contents of OT3 were operating theta level three and the suggestion was made that because there were Mormons among them and that this violated the secret material in some way of the Mormons that pushed the story out again it was okay so whether that's true or not I don't know um you know, demon infestation is 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 found in just about 
every religion there is, one way or another, whether they call them body thetans or whatever, dibuks or gadons or whatever. But this thought that it only if somebody is personally affronted, you know, if you if you upset one of the Murdoch family or something, then something will happen. Altogether, when I first submitted Blue Sky for publication, it went 50 publishers. It, this was in oh, I don't know, 1986. And um, 11 of them came back saying, we'd really like to publish this book. And 10 of them said, but there wouldn't be any money in it. The other publisher <laughs> was Collins, who at the time, now Harper Collins, but they were the biggest publisher in the world. And for three months, one of the editors there fought to have the book published. Um, and in the end, they were just, but yeah, it, this is all good, but you're not going to make, we're not going to make any money because they'll sue us. And so that, that I, mean, I mean, I remember um, the publisher of Cyril Vosper's book. Um, he was just about to retire and he wrote to me and I can just see him in his, you know, handmade Savile Row suit sitting there. And he signed off the letter, Death to the Evil Cult. You know, so people don't like them, but, but there is that fear. And when you know the likes of Richard Dawkins go out and say it's a major religion, it's like in what sense? You know, it's, it's this tiny little group of uh, fervent people who are. Um, well, Lisa McPherson, there was a journalist on. I think she was with the St Pete Times, and we talked a couple of times. She was a woman in her seventies. She she'd won a Pulitzer, not for a Scientology story, and she said that she was a friend of the DA, and so she said to him, "Why wasn't the McPherson case pushed?" And she said she'd found eight other suspicious deaths at Clearwater, and she said that her friend the DA said, "I don't want anybody counting the scotch bottles in my trash." Yeah, yeah, and that's a good point. You, you know, it, it's and and I guess you know you you must occasionally reflect on this. You and and your wife must occasionally reflect on what the hell am I doing this for? Yeah. Certainly, you know, I came, every day. Yeah, <laughs> I came away from it. It's sort of you know, I have no skin in the game. I I'm not upset with yeah. anybody in Scientology. Um, well, let's go back to something you said earlier about the, the not knowing. That, that for me, one of the most incredible events in in my career. In 1993, the head of um, Office of Special Affairs Investigation Unit, which is espionage harassment, came to me in the attempt, because everything had failed. She'd been running operations for 18 months and I was still going. So she came personally to talk to me. And at the end of three hours, and she told me, you know, that she was a gopher. She was a lowly person. You know, she was the head of, of OSA Invest. And I had somebody who'd recently come out, and they confirmed this for me, so that she came back the next day. And I confronted her with, with this guy and said, you know, you're the head of this. What are you saying? And she broke down. And she spent three hours telling me what a horrific life she had had from the age of six in Scientology. Just the, It's the worst story I've heard in, of, of many terrible stories. Then she revealed that she had four people in my close circle, who were reporting on me. And she got another one in training. Wow. And so you're finding out that people you've, you know, in this case, there was only one of them, but I'd taken him into my confidence. And he's going and writing reports. Um, there, there was a woman who, whose husband had multiple cirrhosis. Uh, he was a record producer. He produced uh, Jerry Rafferty, though not the famous Baker Street, thing like that. And she'd been phoning me up and 
one of her friends left and it was somebody I'd known years before and he's she called me up and said look all of the questions I asked you were given me by Osa and I recorded all of our conversations so that sense that you know um, anything you say may be used in evidence against you even if you say it in private I I started I thought it was very good for me because it, it, it meant you know I'll have to be a good person, you know, <laughs> have to, um, you know, be, and, and not have the, the, you know, I made sure that anybody who came to me who wanted to help me, that, that they didn't, it wasn't because they wanted to harm Scientologists. Sadly, that, yeah. that meant that over the years, there were only about two or three people <laughs> who were useful because most people are upset. And, you know, so being in the situation where you find out that, you know, even people you thought were intimates. I mean, you wrote The Unbreakable Miss Lovely, which is a brilliant book, I think. And there you have the story of Paulette Cooper, who I think probably suffered worse than, than anybody in terms of, you know, and finding out that somebody who'd befriended her and that she considered to be a friend was actually writing little notes saying, I think she might kill herself, or, you know, I got her up on the roof, or all of these right. terrible things. It It really does... The ground underneath your feet is no longer steady when you find those things out. Um, but it- yeah, I mean, the methods are creepy. The methods are insidious. Um, but, you know, uh, look, Janet Reitman's book wasn't sued. Lawrence Wright's book wasn't sued. HBO's going clear. HBO wasn't sued over going clear. A&E wasn't sued over um, the aftermath. The last suit against a media organization was the Washington Post in 1995. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we're coming up on 30 years on that. So I think um, it's just a shame that there are still news organizations that are that are shy because what you've been through, what I've been through, but especially people like Mike Rinder and, and Paulette Cooper and, and Jerry Armstrong, this is stuff people need to know because this organization is still doing this kind of thing today. They will keep doing it unless they are stopped. So I, I hope Mike's books does really well for Simon and Schuster. And they uh, will, I think they'll be very happy that they took this book on. And uh, John, thank you very much for giving me uh, your thoughts about it. Any final uh, observation you wanted to make about the book? Yeah, I, the, the, it, it is that, that he talks about the how, you have to change your mind and what you have to do to leave. And he, he says, at the moment that he's about to leave in 2007, what about my eternity and making it to the top of the Scientology bridge? What about my family? I still loved my children who are now 28 and 23, even though I never saw them. I loved my mother and siblings whom I'd also lose if I left. So bearing in mind he not only stood up and spoke out, but he knew that he was going to lose contact with, you know, those who were intimate to him. It was a tremendously courageous thing to do. It's a very good book. It's well written. It's a page turner. And even for, you know, old hands like you and me, there is new material in there. So Lots, lots of new life. stuff, lots of surprises. Pick it up. And uh, uh, I'm hoping... Uh, Maybe we'll find some follow-up uh, things to do in the bunker about it. Yeah. 
but, and of uh, course, do definitely go and have a look at the, the interviews I did with Mike where he talks about some of these events in, in detail. I, I'm always very happy to have <laughs> more subscribers on my little channel. You know? And I'll definitely provide a link to that. Okay, John, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah.